Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. I grew up in the North Carolina Piedmont, and it was very common when I was a kid driving around to see these huge fields of kudzus climbing all over everything, from fields to trees to telephone poles to, like, abandoned tobacco barns. And people talked about this plant almost like it was a monster. <laughs> like, it was... People called it the vine that ate the South and described it as being almost unkillable and also teeming with stinging, biting insects and maybe venomous snakes and maybe even, like, murderers hiding in there. It just sounded like the worst plant in the world. Um, I also got the basic story that they had introduced this plant to the United States to stop erosion, and it got completely out of control. So the other day, there was a random headline that just took me down a train of thought to kudzu, and I started wondering how much of that basic story I heard as a kid was really true, and also, who was they in this story? (laughs) They introduced kudzu. Who specifically was that? Uh, And that's how we got this episode. Uh, So for a little level setting and what kudzu is, kudzu is a semi-woody perennial climbing vine. It's actually in the pea family. There are at least 15 different species in the genus Pueria, and the one that's prevalent in the United States is Pueria montana variety lobata, or just Pueria lobata. Uh, Kudzu has hairy vines and trifoliate leaves, meaning that each leaf is made up of three leaflets. So at a glance, young kudzu vines can resemble poison ivy. Boy, have I made that mistake before. Um, But poison ivy is glossier, and those hairs are roots that it uses to anchor itself and climb surfaces. And kudzu, on the other hand, climbs by twining around itself or around other objects. Kudzu is also a flowering plant. It produces flowers for the first time when it's about three years old. And those flowers smell like grape candy. They're typically purple, but they can also come in shades that are more red or more pink. And these flowers form seed pods, but most of the time, only a couple of seeds in each pod are viable. They can also take a really long time to germinate, like years. So while it's possible for people to collect and intentionally propagate these seeds... Most of kudzu's spread comes from the plant sending out runners. These runners form nodes roughly a foot apart with a new root forming at each node. This is a deciduous plant, so it drops its leaves after the first hard frost, and it leaves this mat of brown vines behind. I can't speak for anybody else, but when I was a child, I thought kudzu was actually pretty, like, relatively an attractive plant in the green months. (laughs) The rest of the time, not so much. Uh, That vine grows back in the spring, though, and it thrives in places that have an average rainfall of about 40 inches or 101 centimeters or more, also with a long growing season and mild winters. And that means that kudzu is especially suited to places that have a humid subtropical climate, like the southeastern United States, where it is a notoriously invasive plant, and parts of eastern and southeastern Asia and nearby Pacific Islands, which are its native region. Particularly in the United States, kudzu has become most associated with Japan. 
In Japanese, it's known as kuzu, and sometimes it's also called Japanese arrowroot. It's part of a group of traditionally admired plants known as the Seven Herbs of Autumn. The first written reference to kudzu in Japanese is a poem that dates back to the year 600. The dictionary known as the Wamyosho, which was compiled during the Heian period, describes kudzu leaves being eaten as a wild vegetable. Kudzu has been widely used all over its native region for all kinds of purposes for millennia. Kudzu starch acts as a thickener, similar to filet, which is made from sassafras. Kudzu starch and kudzu flour are also used to make other foods like noodles and mochi and to coat foods before frying them. The leaves, the flowers, and the roots are all edible, and bees can make kudzu honey from the flowers. Kudzu roots can be just enormous, and they've also been an important food source during times of famine in Asia. In China, Japan, and Korea, kudzu has also been used to make textiles, separating out the plant's fiber and using it to weave cloth. The oldest mention of this textile in writings is from the work of Chinese philosopher Confucius in the 5th century BCE. Kudzu stems and vines have also been used to make paper and to weave baskets for hundreds of years or more. Various parts of the kudzu plant are also used extensively in traditional Chinese medicine. Kudzu is an ingredient in a tea that has been used as a treatment for alcohol abuse for more than a thousand years. Doctors Wing Bing Chung and Bert L. Valley of Harvard University studied this treatment in China, and they isolated an active ingredient to test its effect on hamsters. Their work was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in the 1990s, and it suggested that this substance was effective both at suppressing the appetite for alcohol and for helping to improve the function of alcohol-damaged organs. Subsequent research into the same basic thing has also continued to be pretty promising. Traditional Chinese medicine practitioners also use kudzu to treat high blood pressure, migraines, circulatory problems, and pain. While traditional Chinese medicine is based on the idea of balancing and supporting the flow of qi through the body, Western medical research has found that kudzu preparations can contain high concentrations of flavonoids, which are antioxidants, that may have a physiological effect on all of those conditions. The Japanese text Seikatsu Roku, or Account of Processing Kudzu Starch, was written by Okura Nagatsune and illustrated by Arasaka Hokuba, who was a student of previous podcast subject Katsushika Hokusai. This text was written in about 1828, and its description of this plant nods to something that later made kudzu so popular in the United States— It describes kudzu as a, quote, useful thing in useless places. Because in addition to all of these many, many uses we just discussed, it could grow in very poor soil and on steep mountain slopes that couldn't really be used for other purposes. Even in its native region, kudzu can grow over and damage other plants and built structures if it is left unattended. But at the same time, various other factors usually keep it from getting out of control. There's competition from other plants that are also native to the ecosystem. Various fungi and other pathogens that infect kudzu are endemic in Asia, but they just don't exist in many other parts of the world. 
Researchers have also identified dozens of insect species that feed on kudzu in China and Japan, eating the roots or leaves or sucking the moisture from the stems. One of these is the Japanese kudzu bug, and that is going to come up again later. Kudzu has been introduced to lots of places outside of its native range. It's naturalized in parts of Central Asia, Southern Africa, Central America, coastal Australia, and various Pacific and Caribbean islands. Being naturalized means that it's able to reproduce and sustain itself in these areas where it's been introduced without the help of human beings. Invasive plants are a subset of naturalized plants. Not only can they reproduce and sustain themselves without people's help, but they also have the potential to cause economic or ecological damage. Not all naturalized plants are invasive, but all invasive plants are naturalized. The International Union for the Conservation of Nature has listed kudzu as one of the 100 worst invasive species in the world. But the IUCN also notes there's one specific place where it's really a serious pest, and that is in the southeastern United States. We will get to how kudzu was introduced to the southeastern U.S. after a quick sponsor break. One of the many popular but ultimately questionable at best ideas that was floating around in the 19th century was acclimatization. When we have talked about this on the show before, it's been in the context of colonists who were nostalgic for the flora and fauna of home and then tried to introduce those species into the places that they were then living. And uh, this has often really not gone well at all. One example from way back in the archive that's been a Saturday classic a little more recently is British colonists in Australia who missed having rabbits around. So they brought some rabbits to Australia, and that has been causing problems for more than 150 years. But some acclimatization proponents in the U.S. looked at things more broadly. They advocated bringing all kinds of plants and animals from all around the world and introducing them for the sake of, quote, improving what was available in North America. After the 1853 Perry Expedition forced Japan to start trading with the West, this acclimatization movement included Japanese plants. One major proponent of this was horticulturalist Thomas Hogg, who served as U.S. Consul and Customs Service Advisor in Japan from 1862 to 1874. Hogg sent a lot of Japanese plants and seeds to his brother James, who owned a nursery business, as well as to other competing nursery owners. He wasn't just trying to help his brother's business out. He also really thought it was important to send these plants to the United States to get them established. Hogg was one of the people who introduced a Japanese knotweed, which is also considered invasive in the U.S., to the United States. Thomas is not known to have sent James any kudzu samples. But the hogs are an example of how there was already a lot of interest in acquiring and growing Japanese plants in the U.S. in the late 19th century, part of a general fascination with and eagerness for anything Japanese. So when kudzu was first showcased at the Japanese Garden Pavilion at the 1876 Philadelphia Centennial Exhibition, people were ready. At this exhibition, kudzu was shown primarily as an ornamental plant, 
one that would provide fast-growing shade along with beautiful, fragrant flowers. Kudzu made another appearance at the World Cotton Centennial that was held in New Orleans starting in 1884. This was another World's Fair, and it introduced the kudzu vine to more people who were living in the hot, humid South. Soon, this plant had been nicknamed porch vine, with people planting it around porches and courtyards and training it up arbors and trellises to provide additional shade. In the southeastern U.S., these newly planted porch vines could grow up to a foot a day during warm, sunny weather, or about 60 feet or 18 meters over the course of one growing season. I imagine sitting on your porch and just watching it expand slowly. (laughs) (laughs) People were intentionally training this growth up their porch railings and onto trellises rather than encouraging it to run along the ground. But it still didn't take long for people to notice that kudzu could spread aggressively if they didn't keep it cut back. One of the people who noticed kudzu's troublesome potential was David Fairchild, who worked for the USDA. While working as a plant explorer in Japan, he had seen kudzu being used in pastures for livestock to graze on. So he tried planting some around his home in 1902, not not just trailing it up the porch, and he found that it quickly became really overgrown and hard to manage. While Fairchild expressed his concerns about the plant to the USDA, it wasn't until 1938 that he published an account of his experience in his book, The World Was My Garden, Travels of a Plant Explorer. That experience included spending more than $200 trying to eradicate the kudzu on his property before eventually selling it, at which point the new owner pastured a cow on it over an entire summer. Yeah, and that's like that's like $200 in... 1930s money. <laughs> yeah, that is a significant Significant investment. expense. Yeah. Uh, and he did, then he was like, kind of gave up. He was like, I'm just going to sell this house. <laughs> it's haunted with kudzu. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, in Florida, Charles and Lily Please were also growing kudzu. They had originally planted it to provide shade, but then Charles had moved some of it to another spot on their property Soon he noticed that their farm animals seemed to really like to eat it. It also grew really quickly once it was established and the animals seemed to thrive on it. So the Pleases established Glen Arden Nursery to sell this seemingly miraculous forage plant. In 1925, Charles also wrote a pamphlet called Kudzu, Coming Forage of the South. The Pleases started selling kudzu through mail order, and before long, they faced an investigation for suspected mail fraud. The U.S. Postal Service doubted their claims of the plant's hardiness and dramatic growing speed. The postal inspector's doubts apparently disappeared after an in-person visit to their farm. In 1967, a historical marker was erected on Highway 90 in Chipley, Florida, I know where that is, commemorating the Pleas' development of kudzu as a commercial crop. One article that I read when I was researching this claimed that people from Georgia and Alabama will go down there to spit on it. I mean, you know, uh, (laughs) people will do things for many reasons. (laughs) So, as food for livestock, kudzu really was remarkable. When cut and baled as hay, it could be harvested twice or sometimes even three times in a season. 
Animals could also graze directly on it in their pastures. And nutritionally, it was similar to alfalfa, although because it had this woody vininess to it, that just took more work to harvest it and bale it. That additional work and people's experiences with their overgrown porch vines made a lot of farmers reluctant to try kudzu as forage, though. In many areas, people only planted kudzu in places where the soil just would not support any other crop. But in some areas, there were special incentives. For example, in 1920, the Central of Georgia Railway gave out free kudzu plants to farmers. The idea was that they would farm kudzu hay, which they would then need to transport by rail. Growing kudzu as forage involved some built-in checks on the plant's growth. Farmers who grew kudzu to be used as hay were cutting it down at least twice a season. And those who were planting it in their grazing pastures actually had to make sure their animals didn't graze on it too aggressively because overgrazing could kill it. So even as more people were planting kudzu, its reputation was still more mixed than notorious. People mostly saw it as a valuable shade plant and forage plant, but one that required some extra effort and attention. By the 19-teens, agricultural experiment stations around the Southeast were also working with kudzu, documenting how best to propagate and care for it, measuring how it grew, and studying how it impacted the soil. And through this research, several things became clear. One was that kudzu took some work to establish, but once a seedling had taken root, it was hardy and grew very quickly. Another was that it replenished some of the nutrients in the soil. And a third was that its root system and vines could stabilize topsoil and reduce or even correct erosion. This discovery is what really led to the proliferation of kudzu around the Southeast in the 1930s. And we will get to that after a sponsor break. The most well-known ecological disaster to strike the United States in the 1930s was the Dust Bowl. The federal government had forced indigenous peoples off of their land in the Great Plains and then granted that land to homesteaders who plowed under the native grasses in favor of planting crops like wheat and corn. These farming methods were not appropriate for this land or the climate at all. Irresponsible farming practices combined with severe droughts and high winds leading to huge, destructive dust storms that stripped even more of the topsoil away. What's less well-known today is that erosion was also an enormous problem in the southeastern United States. The soil had been depleted through monocropping, especially with crops like cotton and tobacco. Bull weevil infestations, droughts, and the Great Depression had all caused huge economic hardships for farmers, many of whom abandoned their farms to try to find paying work elsewhere. Much of the southeastern U.S. is prone to brief but intense thunderstorms in the spring and summer, which washed away the topsoil and left gullies behind. In both the Dust Bowl states and in the southeast, these problems were directly connected to the ongoing legacies of colonialism, slavery, and the forced displacement of indigenous peoples. The United States Soil Erosion Service was established in 1933 as part of the National Industrial Recovery Act. It was expanded into the Soil Conservation Service under the Soil Conservation Act of 1935, 
These services were both part of the New Deal. That's the collection of projects, programs, and reforms that were championed by President Franklin D. Roosevelt in the wake of the Great Depression. The idea was not only to restore the depleted soil and to reduce erosion, but also to provide work through the Civilian Conservation Corps and the Works Progress Administration. The Soil Erosion Service and Soil Conservation Service tried using various plants to control erosion. In the southeast, kudzu seemed to have a lot of potential. Kudzu can grow in poor soil, and it has a symbiotic relationship with nitrogen-fixing bacteria and could replenish the nitrogen in the soil. The plant's broad leaves sheltered the soil from heavy rain. Research at one Soil Conservation Service experiment station found that soil under kudzu had 80% less water runoff and 90% less soil loss than soil that was under cotton. Kudzu forms a really thick mat as it grows, and those mats could trap sediment, and that allowed the plant to actually fill in gullies over time. Kudzu can also grow along steep gully walls where other plants really could not. And then on top of all of that, kudzu that was being used for erosion control could also be harvested for hay or used as grazing land as well. Research at agricultural experiment stations also suggested that covering a field in kudzu and then plowing it under after a period of years could restore the soil and improve future crop yields. Between 1935 and 1942, the Soil Conservation Service raised 100 million kudzu seedlings in nurseries in Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Alabama, and Georgia. The U.S. government offered an incentive of up to $8 an acre to farmers who were planting kudzu to control erosion. Kudzu could also prevent erosion on highway and railroad cuts and embankments, so highway departments and railroad companies were eligible for that incentive as well. So the spread of kudzu was also tied to the proliferation of automobiles and the highways that were built to accommodate them. The U.S. Department of Agriculture also worked to assuage farmers' fears about this plant. A.J. Peters, principal agronomist, wrote Kudzu, a forage crop for the Southeast, in 1932. This was distributed as USDA Leaflet 91, and it included this language under the headline, Kudzu Not a Pest, which I, it made me laugh out loud the first time I read this headline. Uh, quote, there is no danger that a kudzu will become a pest. True, the growth, if uncontrolled, will make a tangle of vines likely to smother bushes and even small trees. But in fields, heavy grazing or cutting at once reduces the stand and weakens the growth. Hogs will eat the starchy roots and destroy a stand. The few plants that remain can be readily killed by digging them. By the late 1930s, kudzu had been introduced to every state in the southeastern U.S., In 1939, R.Y. Bailey of the Soil Conservation Service wrote up a 30-page booklet called Kudzu for Erosion Control in the Southeast, with a slightly revised edition being printed in 1944. And that pamphlet walked through the need for a heavy-duty plant to control erosion and mitigate the effects of, quote, overproduction of clean-tilled cash crops. It included information on how to plant and care for kudzu on different types of slopes and in different configurations, as well as using it as part of a crop rotation to replenish the nutrients in the soil. 
And this pamphlet once again reiterated, quote, kudzu is not a pest. There is a rather prevalent belief that kudzu is likely to become a serious pest if planted in or near cultivated cropland. Experience has shown that this belief is unfounded. The habits of growth of kudzu make its control very simple. This plant grows only from buds at the crowns and at the nodes of vines. There are no buds on the roots below the crowns, nor the vines between the nodes. New plants are established only by the formation of roots at the nodes of vines, which are in contact with the ground. The growth made by these roots during the first growing season is not sufficient to make them difficult to break loose by a plow when the land is broken the following spring. This brochure goes on to say, quote, The question frequently arises as to the possibility of kudzu becoming a serious pest where it is planted in areas adjoining woodland. The vines sometimes cover a few trees along the border, but the damage done to an established stand of trees is no more serious than the effect of the trees on cultivated land. Where a vigorous stand of kudzu adjoins a plantation of young trees, serious damage to the trees may result unless steps are taken to prevent its spread into the trees. Encroachment of kudzu into woodland, either young or mature, can be prevented by making one trip along the border between the kudzu and the trees three or four times during each growing season with a drag harrow, a one-horse springtooth harrow, or with a plow to drag the runners back from the trees. In some instances, farm roads between kudzu and woodland areas are used as effective barriers between the two types of plantings. Before World War II, the United States had been getting most of its kudzu seedlings from Japan. As diplomatic relations between the two countries started to crumble, the Soil Conservation Service turned its attention to harvesting seeds and collecting cuttings to transplant domestically rather than importing them from Japan. In the 1940s, one of the most vocal proponents of kudzu was Channing Cope of Georgia, who called kudzu a miracle vine. He had bought a 700-acre farm in 1927 and arranged it so that different pastures contained different forage plants, and he could move his cattle from one to the next as the seasons changed. Kudzu was best from May to October and also served as insurance against drought. Cope called this method, quote, front porch farming, because once everything was planted, if you had binoculars or a telescope to check on things and electronic controls for your gates... You could just do it all from your front porch. Yeah, you didn't you didn't need to raise food crops to sell. Just plant all your fields this way. Kind of shift the cows from one pasture to the next. Super easy uh, in his philosophy. Cope hosted agricultural officials and dignitaries at his farm. In 1943, he founded the Kudzu Club of America and also started a daily early morning radio program for farmers that he broadcast from his porch. He also had a daily column in the Atlanta Constitution from 1945 to 1950. Cope's Kudzu Club had 20,000 members at its peak and established a goal of planting 8 million acres of kudzu. In 1949, he published a book called Front Porch Farmer, which sold 80,000 copies and was also used as a textbook. Sometimes Cope is described as the reason why kudzu became so widespread in the South. And while his newspaper column and radio program reached a lot of people, an estimated 3 million acres of kudzu had already been planted by 1945. 
Cope was definitely one of the most visible and memorable people associated with all of this, though. He was interviewed in Time and Newsweek, and he was nicknamed The Prophet. When the Atlanta Constitution printed a kudzu centennial in 1976, it called him a kudzu zealot. Good. (laughs) It was in a photo caption of him, I think. By the time Cope started his radio show, the USDA was kind of starting to walk back its kudzu enthusiasm. A revised version of Kudzu, a forage crop for the Southeast that was published in 1943, no longer insisted that kudzu was not a pest. Instead, it said, quote, Kudzu is sometimes a nuisance when growing in places where not wanted. It is not hard to kill, however, although it takes a lot of work to remove it from places that cannot be mowed and plowed. It will not stand continuous close cutting and can be killed by mowing four or five times a year or by close pasturing throughout the growing season. Where these methods cannot be practiced, cutting by hand must be resorted to or some chemical weed killer used. And it was becoming increasingly clear that the aggressive use of kudzu in the southeastern U.S. had some drawbacks. Sure, if a farmer pastured cows on kudzu, they would naturally limit its spread as they grazed, as would regularly cutting kudzu fields to bale into hay. But the vast amounts of kudzu planted along the road and railroad embankments, that's another story altogether. There were no grazing livestock or regular mowing going on to keep it controlled. Plus, when the government stopped paying farmers to plant kudzu, they mostly quit doing it. Yeah, a lot of farmers had other options that they kind of preferred, but when it came to, like, the the road embankments and the railroad embankments and all that, like, kudzu was still, in a lot of places, the plant that grew the best on that kind of steep slope with indifferent soil. (laughs) Left undisturbed, the kudzu that was planted along southeastern highways and railroads quickly grew into adjoining fields and forests. It grew up utility poles, pulling them down or causing shorts, It also grew across the railroad tracks that it was supposed to border, and then as trains ran over it, it broke down into a slippery goo that could uh, do everything from slowing down the train's progress to even causing derailments. And that huge root system, I mean, the roots can be massive, and those seeds that take forever to germinate also meant that kudzu could crop up again in places where people thought it had been removed. And then in a, especially in more remote areas, that meant it could establish another foothold before anybody really noticed. In 1953, the USDA stopped advocating kudzu's use for ground cover and for fodder. The Kudzu Club of America disbanded sometime in the 1950s as well. In 1962, the Soil Conservation Service recommended the planting of kudzu only in areas that were far away from homes, orchards, forests, and fences. Basically anything that could be overrun if the plant was not carefully managed. That same year, Channing Cope died. He had continued to grow kudzu on his property and to advocate for it even after the government had really stopped its support. And as his property had become increasingly overgrown, he had also refused to allow officials in to try to control it. So he had this secluded property with kudzu-covered arbors and alcoves, and that became a popular hangout for teenagers. In a story that was attributed to his friend Philip Cohen, his death followed a heart attack while he was going out to yell at some teens to get off of his property. 
That's such a heartbreakingly meme death. Like the, hey, yeah. you kids, get off my lawn. Um, in 1982, the U.S. government declared kudzu a weed. And in 1997, it was added to the Federal Noxious Weed Act. By this point, multiple states and municipalities had laws on the book prohibiting the planting of kudzu or levying fines for allowing it to spread beyond a person's own property. Although the federal noxious weed list is no longer including kudzu, it is still classified as a noxious weed in several states. In the U.S. today, kudzu is primarily associated with the Southeast and especially the Deep South, but it grows in 32 states, stretching all the way north to Maine and west to Texas, with a few patches also found in Washington and Oregon. Kudzu has also been discovered in southern Ontario, Canada, It doesn't proliferate as much in places that are colder or drier than the southeastern U.S., although it can still sustain itself and spread. And then, of course, there are also concerns about how global warming might expand this plant's favored range. Seemingly every source on kudzu reports that it covers somewhere between 7 million and 9 million acres of land in the U.S. today, and that it spreads at a rate of 150,000 acres a year. And if you've ever driven a highway or ridden on a train and seen huge swaths of kudzu growing along the banks and up hillsides and covering trees and telephone poles, that probably sounds about right. Uh, Looking out the window, it can feel like you're seeing the edge of an impenetrable, endless expanse of kudzu. But as we said earlier, kudzu loves full sun. It can't penetrate deep into the trees because it's just too shady along the forest floor. Yeah, it really likes the edges. And if you're in the car looking out the window, like, the edge is what you're seeing. Uh, That 7 to 9 million acre number also seems to be just hugely inflated. According to an article in Smithsonian Magazine by Bill Finch, lead horticulture and science advisor to the Mobile Botanical Gardens in Alabama, this figure seems to have come from a small garden club publication and not from a rigorous study. The U.S. Forest Service's most recent kudzu survey took place in 2010. And at that point, kudzu covered only an estimated 227,000 acres of forest in the U.S., spreading by about 2,500 acres a year. There is no official agency measuring how much kudzu is growing outside of forests, but research ecologist Jim Miller has estimated that kudzu covers about 500,000 acres of urban and suburban land. That's a lot, but it is so much less than 9 million acres. It is also a lot less than many other invasive plant species in the U.S., including Japanese honeysuckle, Chinese privet, English ivy, air potatoes, and tallow trees. In general, kudzu is demonized in a way that these other more widespread and often more destructive plants simply are not. There's even a possibility that the amount of kudzu in the United States is starting to decline. Although some people argue that we should learn to live with and use kudzu rather than trying to eradicate it, officials and property owners all over the country have been working to get rid of it for decades, using everything from aggressive cutting to controlled burns to herbicides to grazing animals. And one of my favorite stories from my research for this, in 2006, goats were being used to try to control kudzu near Chattanooga. They kept being attacked by dogs, so they brought in donkeys to guard the goats, and that didn't work. So the next year, they switched to guard llamas. I mean, 
If you've ever seen an angry llama, this makes all the sense on Earth. Absolutely. (laughs) Earlier, we talked about how insects feed on kudzu in Asia. In one of these, the Japanese kudzu bug was first spotted near Atlanta in 2009, probably having arrived on board an international flight. This bug has since spread to multiple adjacent states, and it seems to have reduced the spread of kudzu in these areas, in some cases quite dramatically. The Japanese kudzu bug also feeds on another invasive plant, wisteria. But since it feeds on soybean crops as well, its introduction is not entirely welcomed. Although kudzu's physical presence in the southeastern United States is a lot smaller than is widely reported, its cultural presence is just huge. During its heyday and popularity, there were things like kudzu festivals and kudzu pageants and kudzu queens, And those mostly faded away as enthusiasm for the plant fell off, but some of them have been revived in more recent years. Kudzu has also become a recurring theme in Southern literature, something that mostly started after the plant became more vilified than praised. James Dickey published a poem called Kudzu in The New Yorker in 1963. That poem is full of foreboding imagery, including green, mindless, unkillable ghosts. It's quoted very frequently in books and articles about kudzu, regardless of whether they're popular or academic, although most sources do not quote its first words, Japan invades. The syndicated comic strip Kudzu depicted rural Southerners, and that ran from 1981 until shortly after its creator Doug Marlette's death in 2007. Uh, I number one, found just a surprisingly large number of poems in my search results of uh, of databases containing academic papers that, that I consult for the show. Way more poems than I think have been found in any other uh, research process that was not specifically about a poet. Number two, man, I got so sick of that James Dickey poem. Maybe we'll talk <laughs> more about that in the behind the scenes. Uh, especially as kudzu's reputation declined after the 1950s, it became kind of a shorthand for southernness. Often the idea of kudzu conjures up associations with poverty and neglect and decline thanks to photos of it overrunning things like abandoned barns and tractors. But at the same time, it's still somewhat celebrated with roads, businesses, festivals, music groups, restaurants, breweries, and beers all named after it, and I am sure many other things, too. Back when I was living in Atlanta, close to where I lived was uh, was Kudzu Antiques Mall. Yeah, one of my favorite places to go poke around. Anyway, that's Kudzu, brought to you by my personal curiosity, <laughs> uh, prompted by a random headline during the week. Do you also have listener mail? Sure do. This is from William, and it is uh, it follows our episode on, on the Haymarket Riot. And William says, Hi, Holly and Tracy. I've been a listener to Stuff You Missed in History class for over 10 years, and I absolutely love this show. Your unearthed episodes helped inspire me to go back to grad school and get my master's degree in archaeology. Maybe one day soon I'll uncover something worth featuring on the show. As a resident of Chicago, I will say that it is always great to hear episodes about the history of our city The memory of the incident was recently brought back to the fore in an unusual way. In 2018, a new folk musical called Haymarket premiered in Chicago, and I was able to catch a performance. 
Uh, it was a fairly small production with the cast doubling as musicians, but was extremely heartfelt and informative. When you mentioned the eight hours of work, eight hours of rest, eight hours for what we will slogan in the episode, I caught myself humming a phrase from the musical for the rest of the day. The soundtrack is available on iTunes and Spotify, and I thought you and the listeners may enjoy it, especially in connection with the latest episode. Can't wait for more Stuff You Missed in History Class, William. Well, first off, William, congrats on getting your master's in archaeology. I feel honored that our show had anything to do with your, uh, your inspiration to do that. Um, I think I stumbled across a couple of references to the Haymarket musical during my research, and it was one of those things that just didn't make it into the episode, but I am glad to check out some songs from it when I have a moment to do so. So thank you, William, for reminding me of that, giving us a chance to talk about it on the show. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at historypodcast at iheartradio.com. And we're all over social media at Missed in History. That's where you'll find our Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. And you can subscribe to our show on the iHeartRadio app and wherever you like to get your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.